Sometimes our commander-in-chief, ideally a polder of the law, fails to inspire us. Take the 1970s. Well, I'm not a crook. Or the 90s. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And now the 21st century. I'm an extremely stable genius. You're about to hear two attorneys make sense out of a legal system some say is a train wreck. Here are Royal Oaks and Connor Oaks. This is Too Many Lawyers. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm Connor Oaks. It is Sunday, March 21. And Connor, before we get to our uh, big-time topics, of course, um, UCLA has uh, has just beaten BYU. Secured a spot in the top 32 of the... Uh, 64, actually. Oh, no, was, they only added... Yeah, what the deal is you <laughs> play in. Uh, there are four teams that have to compete to play into ah, the 64. Like wild cards. Yeah, kind of like that. And UCLA, I mean, I'm from the 1970s uh, John Wooden era where we were just knocking off the national championship every year or so. No sweat. It's, it's been a kind of a long, a dry, dry spell. spell. Yeah, Drought. Yeah. So it's nice Drought. to see uh, UCLA at least in the top 64 yeah. having bumped off the Mormons of BYU. I wonder, you think there's a requirement? Do you have to be of the Mormon faith? I don't think they like the word Mormon, by the way. It's uh, It's true. Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They, they do. want the they whole do phrase. That. Yes, and uh, you don't have to be Mormon to go to BYU. I'm sure lots of people who okay. go there for, you know, whatever research opportunities they've got or academic scholarships or something in specific. Uh, I'm sure they have good reasons. Well, we'll uh, wish the best of luck to the Bruins as Woo. they compete. Wouldn't that be fun? Even they, though I'm an SC I was going to say, if they wound up against SC, I don't know if they're going to meet in the round of 32 Who or knows, 16 yeah. or what. But that would be quite a clash. I don't know that SC and UCLA have ever faced each other in the NCAA tournament. don't know. Are, is SC even good? I mean, Well, they just won their first round. And so now they're going into, I guess, the round of 32. So. Wow. Well, I got to start becoming a you know real fan instead of a Fairweather fan. I don't want to wait until they're actually you know in the finals before I check out what the lineup looks yeah, like. Yeah, there's no time to lose. So we're going to talk about four things today on its uh, on this podcast, uh, Too Many Lawyers. Uh, I almost said it's the law because I just launched this little one-minute spot. It's the law. Oh, excellent plug there. Through, Very subtle. Through, through did, you say, <laughs> did you say that the, you've just launched a new audio podcast uh, radio we, experience? We have launched it. It is not a podcast. It's a one-minute spot. So nice. even if it's really stupid and boring, I mean, you could, hold your, you could hold your breath through the whole damn thing <laughs> and still survive and still tell your friends, oh my gosh, I held my breath through the stupidest radio feature by Royal. Anyway, uh, so yeah, listen to that at your favorite uh, news talk station around the country. So two, four topics. Number one, the editorial. I've just coined this phrase. Wow. Editorial is a headline that's really an editorial. Nice. The LA Times is guilty of that. We're going to explain how. Excellent neologism. Kamala Harris is the Zelig of Vice Presidents. Zelig, the historical figure, Woody Allen movie from the 80s. He popped up meeting Babe Ruth and, and Woodrow Wilson and, and all these famous people, F. Scott Fitzgerald. He had no reason to be there, but he just met all these. He was always in the background. Had a really good press agent. Just like Kamala Harris, she's always with the president. Mm. And I will explain why. We are also going to talk about the Los Angeles District Attorney, George Gascon, who doesn't seem to think that anybody should be put to death, no matter how terrible they are. So we're going to take him to task, at least I am, yep. for that. I'm not sure Connor will agree. And finally, we're going to tell our origin stories. You know, we get the origin stories of Batman and uh, <clears throat> Superman. And not to suggest that Connor and I are up there in the Pantheon with We're close. I mean, superheroes. B-tier. B- yeah, but we'll get into that as well here on Too Many Lawyers. 
So let's kick it off with the first topic, editorial. So here, here's my thought. I'm reading the LA Times, and they're talking about Gavin Newsom, the beleaguered, embattled governor of California. He's facing recall for various reasons. Uh, I guess they only needed like a million and a half signatures, and they got two million because you never know a few hundred thousand might be fakes. But uh, a lot of folks were, were pretty much in favor uh, of, of getting this issue on the ballot. And the way it works is now that they're about to qualify for the ballot, uh, in several months, we're going to have an election in California, and there will be an up and down da- or down yes or no vote on Gavin Newsom. Do you want to recall him or not? If more votes come in to, to let him keep the job, then the whole thing's over and he's fine. If more votes come in to recall him, then among the 30, 40, 50 people who've qualified to be on the ballot to replace him, the number one vote getter becomes the governor, just right. like Schwarzenegger replaced Gray Davis years ago. I think Schwarzenegger had a little bit of an advantage because of his celebrity, don't Slight you think? Slight advantage, That yeah. was part of the whole deal. So the LA Times obviously loves Gavin Newsom. They are convinced that QAnon and Trumpsters and white supremacists are trying to get rid of him. And so they ran an article just a couple of days ago about, gee, the pandemic, it's a one-year anniversary, and how did Governor Newsom handle it? And so here is what the uh, Los Angeles Times uh, put as a headline talking about Governor Newsom's performance. Quote, Facing dire virus predictions, Governor resolved to save lives. Now, here's my problem, Connor. <laughs> okay, hit me. It may well be that a rational person looking back on the last year would say, oh, yeah, Governor uh, Grusom, I mean, Newsom is a good guy. He, he really did resolve to save lives. But isn't it kind of just exercising your editorial judgment, trying to persuade people by the LA Times to put a headline that says, Governor resolved to save lives? I mean... Aren't we all resolving to save lives? Isn't that the goal? Does that disturb you at all? I mean, to me, it's like Fox News. You know where they're coming from. They have the little crawl at the bottom of all their all their shows. And the crawl is is very much influenced by their right wing perspective, which is fine, except if you really want just the news, wouldn't you rather have a headline that's written by somebody who's objective, who's just just the facts, ma'am, as opposed to, oh, let's save Gavin Newsom's job? Right, of course. I, I, I'm not about to step in and, and try to um, try to defend the LA Times on this sort of a headline. I, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm the most liberal guy you're going to listen to on a podcast, uh, probably, um, if you're listening to our pod, because you're probably looking for some middle-of-the-road stuff like you're describing. Now, um, Noam Chomsky's and Karl Marx's love child would be more, more liberal, liberal than yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, by 5% more, yeah. Bit, but, uh, but yeah, I think that this is probably uh, a bit of editorializing and a bit of, of hero crafting. I mean, you could say, well, uh, this is just them telling a story and, uh, you know, Angelinos want to, sorry, Californians rather want to read compelling stories about their politicians. And this is just one perspective about one part of, of the California story of the last year. But they should know what they're saying and how it portrays the target of their editorial. They have to know the context that he's facing a, a, a recall. Um and you have to be sensitive of how your headline can look like you're just trying to prop the guy up. So I, I'm with you. I think that this uh, headline is probably over the line. Um, 
just because it doesn't convey any actual information. I mean, come on. Resolve to save lives. Duh. It's we be, all resolve to save lives. Right. It's going to be interesting to see how this recall plays out because uh, the, the whole Trump era has just polarized people so much. Uh, I think it's probably smart for the Democrats in California and Gavin Newsom in particular to try to portray the recall battle as, well, it's just Trumpsters. It's QAnon people. It's white supremacists to try to, you know, get the base out there for, yeah. for, for the left in California. But I was really struck by a statistic statistic that uh, somebody mentioned, that is most of the two million or so signatures by Californians to put on the ballot the recall of Governor Newsom, most of the signatures are from Democrats in Los Angeles County. Now, part of that is because L.A. County has so many people. Gigantic. But the fact- And part of that is the vast majority of the people in L.A. County are Democrats. Yeah. But I mean, do we really think there are a lot of QAnon and white supremacists among Los Angeles County Democrats? I think there's just a deep-seated concern that Newsom kind of dropped the ball. And, uh, you know, whether it's the employment development uh, scandal where- millions and scores of millions of dollars were paid to prisoners on unemployment benefits, even though they didn't deserve them. You just had these overworked clerks during the COVID era. Mm -hmm. And then the question about his handling of COVID and the opening up of the society, opening up of the schools and so on. I mean, is it really fair to portray the recall movement as being motivated by a bunch of QAnon wackos? I think that it's probably... it's not probably it is impossible to tell because, of course, all the people who are predisposed to Newsom uh, are going to be on the uh, other side of him. Any chance to recall a Democratic governor is going to be supported by all the wackos on the other side in the same way that all efforts to recall Republicans in California, to the extent they were ever elected in the first place, are going to be backed by the most uh, far left folks as well. The real question is, are people in the middle the also on board with making this happen and pushing this forward. And the, the, the question uh, is, is mostly answered, uh, I think, no. I think most Democrats may not have loved the way that uh, Newsom handled any individual uh, issue, but a lot of them view Newsom as sort of like, uh, sorry, dumping Newsom as like changing horses in midstream. Um, and that it's not like he's embroiled in uh, too many scandals uh, compared to other politicians. You know, just the average politician is, eh, four or five scandals that bother him every month. But I mean, Newsom has certainly uh, been taking um, taking stands, taking steps to try to protect people. And I think that has it is it has left a lot of people thinking, look, he's trying his best and we're all sort of casting about for answers. It's not like the science is all in on what age exactly of a school child in school is safe. Is it safe for the teachers? Is it safe for the the parents they're taking diseases home to? Is it safe for uh, the the grandparents those parents talk to? I mean, it's really difficult to know these things and unclear. And he has been making some moves a lot of them questionable, but a lot everything's questionable in hindsight, which is very clearly 2020 in a world where the science even changes every couple of months. So overall, it's not like I've got any friends or acquaintances out there saying, yeah, Gavin's got to go because X, Y, Z. He's going to harm us more in the future. I think most 
middle of the road Democrats, although they might be persuaded enough to put their their you know uh, signatures on a, a recall effort because oh well it should just go for the toe to the people you know democracy should decide because those aren't voters saying Newsom should go those are voters saying voters saying it should go to the people to decide whether uh, Newsom should go and it's very easy to persuade somebody that democracy is a good thing in the abstract uh, not that. Newsom's got to go. I mean, I would say that the vast majority of people who say Newsom's got to go have nobody else lined up in mind. I mean, it's not like there's a, a next person who wants to unseat him. There are some Republicans who would like to, but is yeah, there a Democrat stepping there are up? Few of course who, not. There are few who have been spending a lot of money on ads. Well, you mentioned yeah. changing horses in midstream. I, right. It's it's an interesting metaphor. I, I think probably we, we should consider changing horses. You know, just retire Seabiscuit and find a uh, find a different steed who perhaps will not uh, engage in a destructive societal shutdown, causing a childhood uh, suicide to go off the charts, caving into the teachers' union members who simply don't want to go to work. It's something to think about. That That's, mm. that's all mm. I'm trying to say. Hey, uh, as usual, Connor's going to tell you how to uh, rate and subscribe the podcast, and then we're going to get into how Vice President Kamala Harris is the zealot of all vice presidents. But it's a very important, Connor, that you convince people to provide new uh, rates, ratings for the show, because I was noticing the most recent rating said something about you being fantabulous oh, and, and saying that I actually eat, well, I don't want to say what they were saying I should eat. <laughs> We'll just put a blank in there. Look, so Connor, we got passionate fans. People. Look, so you found our episode. You're listening to it right now. But you may not have signed up to get us every single week. And we make the show every single week. So go on to whatever podcast app you use to get this. Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Podcast Addict, doesn't matter. They all have the same functionality. Follow or subscribe us, uh, subscribe to us. So you get us in your inbox every week or a push notification. And leave us a little comment because we appreciate it. This is Too Many Lawyers. We'll be right back. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Royal Oaks. I'm still Connor Oaks. So Kamala Harris, the zealot of vice presidents, mm-hmm. Connor, and here's why I think now Woody Allen made this movie in 1983 called Zelig. Uh, Zelig pops up everywhere. They, he had this old grainy footage of of Babe Ruth and uh, you know and Hitler but- and and uh, President Herbert Hoover and this guy Zelig somehow popped up everywhere. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson uh, and the idea was that the Zelig character always would fit in and he was referred to as a chameleon when he was around Chinese people he became Chinese when he was around Native Americans he became a Native American with doctors he became a doctor and so when I see Kamala Harris showing up every single time there is a photo op where Joe Biden is doing anything there she is I wonder what's going on now Let's face it, there have been some powerful, important vice presidents. Basically, Dick Cheney was running the country when George W. Bush. Absolutely. And whether he was in the photo op or not, he he was a big deal. He may have purposely not been in the photo op for that reason. And so who knows, right? And so who knows what Kamala Harris is actually doing? The suspicion is that she really isn't doing anything of substance. Instead, the progressives... The, the puppet masters who are pulling the strings on Joe Biden have decided that it's very important that she be positioned to replace him in four years because he probably isn't going to be in a position if the to pro- run for a second If there were progressive term. puppet masters controlling Joe Biden, do you think maybe we'd have a $15 minimum wage? Do you think maybe we'd have $2,000 checks? Do you think maybe we'd have any of the things that progressives actually maybe want? Maybe they're not don't as have... good as Geppetto. Yeah, okay? Clearly, they're not very good puppet masters. And 
I would say that the vice president, it's an interesting observation that she's in the background of every photo op. I think you're right. I think that's the primary job description of a vice president is to look good in a photo op and break ties in the Senate. Have you How many heard times the phrase? You have to hang out in the Senate, wait to break ties? No, just the 30s. Alvin Barkley, I think, was the vice president who said the vice presidency isn't uh, worth a bucket of warm spit. <laughs> that's a pretty now, good. I've always been disturbed by that expression. Because, yeah, if you've got a bucket of spit. Ugh. It, it, yes, the uh, I mean, expectoration will be uh, 98.6 when it is, you know, emitted from right. the mouth. But if you've got a bucket of it, it's not going to be warm anymore. For very long, I realize yeah. this is a kind of an esoteric, Maybe they got weird like observation Bunsen on my burner. part. Whatever. The, the point is that, Connor, <laughs> never in history have we seen a vice president seen as such a co-president uh, a, a, along with the president. As you say, maybe Cheney wanted to be in the background because he didn't want folks to know what was going on. But that's not what's going on here. The opposite is true. The people who want a Democrat to win in 2024 seriously want her to be st step her up to the front yeah. and be in every photo opportunity. But I mean, is that really honest? Is that appropriate? Why don't we instead, oh, we are going to finally hear from Joe Biden this Thursday, the 25th of March, after a couple of months, we're, we're going to hear a press conference conference. Mm -hmm. And it'll be real interesting to see if he's able to tackle tough questions. Hopefully he'll take some tough questions during the press conference. He's been but a gaffe machine his whole career. I, I don't think that uh, I don't think Kamala will have to step in and help him help save the, the press conference. I think he'll be fine. The real if question she does. That's really going to be a bad sign. Yeah, sure. I, I, I think what is, Joe meant to say was <laughs> when you say, oh is it dishonest? God. Right. You said, yeah. is it dishonest? Yeah. No, that's the president a, that's a and the vice president's word. You're right. job is to stand in front of cameras and wave from balconies and provide reassurance. It's their job is to make statements to the public and appoint smart people to you know head agencies and run the federal government. So yeah, they're they're in photo ops. If they get a lot of photo ops, is the worst thing that anybody has to say about Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. Then they're freaking killing it. Great job, guys. You're out here writing the American people checks. You still owe us six hundred bucks. But come on. Well, let's cross our fingers and hope the president does well at the press conference coming up this year. Sure, Thursday. he will. Uh, next topic: the Los Angeles County District Attorney George Gascon. Uh, very progressive, uh, very concerned about the carceral state issue, mm -hmm. about mass incarceration, yeah. about racism in the judicial system, all fine to be concerned about that stuff. Here's my problem. He has said blanket, you know, no capital punishment in Los Angeles County. Uh, my my district attorneys, my deputy DAs don't even think about it. Don't come to me with, with a recommendation. And here's my problem. He's a lot like Rose Bird in this respect. She was chief justice of the California Supreme Court back in the 70s, 80s, when, when Jer Jerry Brown, the first time around as governor, appointed her. She was personally opposed to capital punishment. In 55 straight cases before the California Supreme Court, she voted against uh, an, uh, upholding the capital punishment determination. And in every case, she came up with a, what do you know? In this case, there was a flaw. In that case, there was a flaw. But what a coincidence. Every single time she voted against a capital punishment determination, Shock. she had a, a, a valid legal reason for it. There was some flaw down below, an yeah. error by the jury yeah. instruction or the, the prosecution. And this is how a lot of judges operate. I would say the vast well, majority she, of judges but, operate. But she lost her job because people figured out, oh, she's lying. She has a personal objection to capital punishment. That's fine. But if she's going to work as chief justice, she has to honestly dis determine the cases. And if the prosecution... 
prosecution was bulletproof. If there was no flaw in it, she should have voted to uphold it. And she didn't. So she was voted out of office. Now we have George Gascon. And he's different. He's not a chief justice. He's a district attorney. And I get that there is discretion vested in the prosecutorial authorities as to what you charge people with. But clearly, he has said, I'm personally opposed to capital punishment, and he's not going to approve it in any case, even though Californians believe in capital punishment and very recently voted again. It was narrow, but narrowly approved capital punishment. And I just don't understand why it's okay for him to essentially be like a jury nullifier. If you're on the jury and you're hearing a guy who's arrested for firing up a doobie in public before marijuana was was legalized in California or decriminalized, and you say to yourself, I'm going to vote not guilty, even though I know he broke the damned law. I just don't believe in the damned law. That's jury nullification. Do we really want our district attorney engaged in essentially jury nullification? I mean, I can see... The, the the obvious next you know extension the obvious uh, opposite uh, negative uh, film negative version of this that I would strongly object to I, I, I'm fully aware of the conservative argument that says if you're going to have somebody on the other side uh, the who's the flip side of this um, who uh, say they pass a law protecting abortion providers and then this uh, district attorney in Alabama or Mississippi or Texas says, well, I'm just not going to prosecute uh, anybody right. uh, who, who uh, violates this law and attacks uh, or otherwise uh, harasses abortion providers. Yeah, shouldn't we fire that guy? Uh, absolutely. This is a situation where the, the will of the people and uh, you know, recall systems where we impeach elected officials and yank them out of office uh, – the, that those systems are in place for a reason. We've got Gavin Newsom feature, uh, facing possible impeachment. You can put pressure on an impeachable uh, uh, elected official like Gavin Newsom to remove somebody uh, like uh, Gascon. In fact, I think a DA is uh, removable from office. Yeah, oh, yeah, they're trying to well. remove him, right. So this is uh, a situation where the will of the people uh, will uh, stand, right? They will have an opportunity uh, to to yank him out of office if it's a big enough deal. And the real question is, is it a big enough deal? Or actually, is capital punishment, especially in L.A. County, not the rural parts of the state, but the, the uh, liberal cities uh, where he has jurisdiction, is it actually not uh, uh, the will of the people? And it is... Well, you all, can't all his other divide positives. it up among counties or cities. I mean, the state law is the state law, right? I mean, I know you. I know the state law is the state law, but there, it's not going to be the state, the whole state, that's voting uh, to get rid of him. It's going to be his constituents, his uh, the his Angelinos, right? Well, it's so, possible he's thinking about that. But what if he? What if? I mean, I'm a libertarian. I don't like drug laws. But what if he were a libertarian and he said, "Doggone it! I'm district attorney of LA County, but I think all drug laws are bad, and therefore my prosecutors, I'm telling you." I, I don't want you to prosecute any drug crimes. I mean, wouldn't it be appropriate to fire the guy? I mean, what if he's a Satanist and he's okay with murder? Satanists aren't okay with murder. Satanists are a a very nice people. Let's assume for the moment (laughs) that Satanists are in favor of murder. Sure, sure, sure. And he says, I'm, you know, I didn't really mention it during the campaign. It didn't come up. I didn't think it was important. But I am, and I don't believe in murder laws, and so we're not going to prosecute any murders. Is that okay? Seems like like he's got to follow the law. We have we have recall and impeachment processes so that if people go off the rails and start making terrible decisions we can yank them out of here with that right. big long cane with the the hook on the end uh just like they yank you off stage but in this case 
He didn't hide the fact that he's a liberal guy. He was elected by his constituents in Los Angeles because he was a liberal guy, because he would do things like this, because he would, you know. Well, are you thinking big, that big L.A. County ups. would vote against capital punishment? or? or I think L.A. County would vote against capital punishment, maybe. but I also think even if they didn't, even if it was a close case, they'd vote for a smart guy who'd make reasoned decisions on their behalf. And one of the reasoned decisions this guy has come to is, that capital punishment is immoral, along with all of the other positive things. So if you put the po- 10 positive things uh, that, you know, Californians and, and Angelinos specifically support 70% across the board, 70-30. He's in, you know, lots of those categories. Uh, policing is, is uh, systemic racism and policing is a huge problem. Uh, the carceral state is a huge problem. Uh, discrimination uh, among uh, judges when they're sentencing people is a huge problem. All these things are very popular and widely known and, and and, and believed. And then also you say, and uh, capital punishment is is immoral. And that one's 55%, 45% in favor of capital punishment being moral. Okay, they disagree with him on that one point, but they're not going to yank him out on that basis because they like him in every other category. You got to take the good with the bad. I don't like everything Joe Biden likes, this is, but this I voted kinda, for the guy. This is kind of bad, though. I mean, th- this is inside baseball, but but in California, uh, you get to capital punishment not only because of first degree murder, which is, you know, a malice, a forethought, premeditated right. murder, right. but also special circumstances. And there are a bunch of them. Murder for financial gain, using a bomb, killing a judge, a juror, a cop, a firefighter. Uh, a street gang situation, drive-by shooting, uh, if you're doing it because of their race or sexual orientation. So I I guess I don't get it. If a guy in the prosecutor's office comes to the DA Gascon and says, oh, you won't believe this, Uh, this guy uh, killed 17 people, including three prosecutors, five jurors, and two elected officials. He did it for financial gain. He used a, a bomb. And by the way, he was motivated by homophobia. And the DA says, no, don't you think we should fire him? No, because he is not making the decision that those categories are not so bad that they don't deserve punishment or extra punishment. He's saying that the specific punishment of death by the hand of the state is immoral. Or he's saying maybe, you know, it's hard to peer inside people's brains, but he might be saying this guy won't be executed for 50 years and it'll cost $100 million to do it. If we pursue the death penalty, it ends up losing the state money. It doesn't actually provide closure to victims. Turns out the families of victims overwhelmingly don't support uh, uh, capital punishment for murderers. They generally like some sense of sort of redemption because a lot of people like the idea that our our prison system in some way redeems or they fixes like that these guys should be on death row for decades w- without cable i'm not of the fam i'm not the family of a, a of a victim fortunately but many i'm not gonna say all but many of them are not in support of the death penalty but they don't get to make that decision well, the prosecutor's office does so gascon may be making the decision that he's going to vindicate victims families wishes i don't know i'm not i can't peer into his brain and say why he does what he does personally those would be maybe my some of my reasons well, but I can't, I'm not him, but I would support what I think is a reasonable guy who makes good decisions most of the time, even if there's one or two issues that, on which we differentiate. In the same way that you might support a libertarian like Rand Paul, even though there are one or two issues where you, you <laughs> would disagree, like, I don't know, insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But, you know, you overall, he's a libertarian, so you like him and you'd vote for him if given the chance, probably. Well, the good news is 
you and I are going to be able to vote on whether Can't or wait. not to keep Gascon because voting. we're both Always residents works. of Los Angeles County. i got to make a note here to Snopes that as to whether Rand Paul was actually in favor of insurrection at the county. I think it was something we'll like figure, that. We'll figure that out. When we return our origin stories uh, here on Too Many Lawyers, stick with us. This is Too Many Lawyers. I'm Roy Lopes. And I'm Connor Oaks. So um, I'm a baby boomer, libertarian, um, the dad in, in this this pair of podcasts. And I'm hosts. the liberal or progressive son, uh, millennial, uh, in this podcast. And we've both got uh, very different political origin stories, but I think they probably have a, a couple of things in common as well. I would say if I had to trace my political origins— um, I would say my earliest political memory was on uh, the day after Bill Clinton uh, won uh, re-election, would have been re-election for him in uh, 2000. Um, so, well, Bill or rather, Clinton would have been 1999. Well, yeah, well, Bill Clinton won re-election? Oh, yeah, re-election in 1996. Right, mm-hmm. right. So I'm seven years old at this context. I was right. born in 89. So I'm seven years old. My first political memory is waking up— um, Actually, you woke me up. Seeing a picture of Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> right, right. No, no, that was uh, a little, little later, a little later. Um, and uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, who won? Who's the president? And with tears in my eyes, no, I stated, no. You actually oh, okay. had a very uh, even-handed approach. You said, you know, the other guy won. I didn't even know his name. The other guy won, but it's okay. We'll have another shot in four years. And I walked outside, uh, grabbed the, the dog poop shovel, because that was my <laughs> chore back then. And as I wandered around the yard looking for dog poop, and when I found it, studiously ignoring it so that I could pretend I didn't find it, um, I thought to myself, are you kidding me? Four Years we have another shot in four years. I'm seven. That's more than half half, of my life. Mm -hmm. I can't believe we have to wait four years to get this loser out of office. And then, uh, you know, of course, um, uh, I I guess the air quotes good guys at that point. One, when George Bush took over. No, that was my first political memory. But I wouldn't say that it's my political origin story. My political origin story began there with an awareness of politics and and an awareness that, you know, this was a conservative family and that we, you know, like Republicans, uh, that they're sort of the sane voices in the room. Uh, There was a lot of focus um, on you know uh, the free market, the value of the free market, and how it comes to the good, the right conclusions, and how uh, you know f- spending, big time government spending, was very expensive that led to high taxes, taking money away from people, which infringes on their freedom, and then you end up with a uh, big stupid government uh, where you know. Uh, no, I, I, nobody ever said the word plutocrat to me because I'm, you know, eight years old or whatever at this point. But the idea that the government did things less efficiently than private companies. And um, following that, I sort of evolved as a tiny little card carrying Goldwater conservative uh, in, in your image, basically, uh, until I until I left the house at age 18 and I headed off to college uh, all the way through high school. I was very, very conservative and I had a lot of assumptions. And honestly, I never really examined those assumptions or thought about why the, the folks on the other end of the spectrum felt differently. I never really, I I mean, my tiny little shriveled high schooler brain just never even examined the idea that there were other people on the other side of politics, liberals, Democrats, and they had their own brains that could work on problems and they came to different conclusions. I never thought to myself, why did they come to these other conclusions? And then I go off to college 
And as it probably is a common story for most people, I encountered a bunch of liberal people. I can come from a very conservative small town where most people didn't talk about politics, but when they did talk about politics, they were very conservative. And so when I finally met some outspoken liberals in college and without even examining their Should ideas. Should have sent you to Hillsdale. <laughs> without, even, without even examining the, the quality of the ideas, without even thinking, like I met, uh, I met somebody in one of my first year classes um, who, who said that FDR was her favorite president. And I was like, FDR was your favorite president? What's wrong with you? How can FDR be your favorite president? He was wrong about everything, right? <laughs> and then, you know, I would get to know these people and it wasn't that they convinced me that, oh, yeah, no, no, you have to believe in liberalism because of this or progressivism is right because of that. I just heard these people spout progressive or liberal ideas, democratic ideas, and support democratic candidates. And then they turn around and they were smart, empathetic, you know, deep thinkers who beat me in, you know, better getting better grades than I did sometimes. And, and you know, we're... we're, we're just great people to be around. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have just been ignoring half of the political spectrum and treating them like they're not even humans. Like I wasn't even looking into their brains at right. all and thinking, how could they come to this conclusion and trying to get in their heads and think about why they made decisions the way they did. I just had this absolute sense that like the conservatives are the only ones who are thinking about these issues. Because obviously, if you thought about it for two seconds, you'd realize the free market is going to come to the right conclusion. And the price of whatever good is just going to float to the correct spot based on supply and demand, and it's all going to work out. Rising and, tide lifts all boats. Sure, and all these fundamental assumptions that are not really terrible ideas. These are really good ideas, and you know, capitalism is, has been very successful in many ways and is based on those. And I basically... Uh, it was a it was a multi year process that I certainly didn't end in 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 uh, college or even in law school where I started to every time I'd hit this sort of new like a, a new level of 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 you know intro classes versus seminars at the higher level in college versus law school seminars that you'd take and people would start challenging the assumptions that I'd hold as like they'd challenge the idea of a rising tide lift all boats and I became more and more and more progressive not because the progressives were always right on every issue, but because I had these really smart professors and students, you know, uh, people in my class, classmates with me who would examine whether or why rising tides lift all boats and in what contexts, what causes the, uh, the tide to rise, what causes the boats to rise with it, or what causes what boats to sink on uh, when the tide rises. And the, uh, that constant examination was so awesome. It was so refreshing to see people thinking about both sides of issues. And even when they came out on the conservative side or the liberal side, it was just really refreshing to find people that were willing to examine both sides of the issues. And having come from a, 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 a right-wing media bubble up until about age 18 or 19, where I was just listening to the Rush Limbaugh's and the Mark Levin's and the Sean Hannity's of the world, who had absolutely no nuance and absolutely no examination of the other side as thinking humans. That 
was revealed to me in the process when I would talk to liberals, especially liberal professors, and they would just say, well, there's two sides to everything. And here's the context in which this happens. And here's the context in which this happens. And here's the context in which we don't know what happens. But what are our assumptions? What are our baselines? And what are we basing ourselves? What are our values? And when you start to think about the values, the values that that progressives held were very, very attractive to me. Whereas previously, uh, it was just so the, the, the values that I had been, you know, told to value you uh, coming from a conservative standpoint were so black and white to me. They were like, freedom is good. Uh, the opposite of freedom, whatever that is, is bad. And it's like, well, okay, but slavery would be the opposite. Yeah, of sure. Slavery yes. is is bad. Freedom is good. And it's like, that's so black and white. So anyway, that's how I ended up on the progressive end of things is I had this massive turn right in the middle of after, you know, five, six, seven years of being a cognizant political thinker. And then now I've probably had seven, eight, nine, 10 years of being, uh, you know, post going to college, uh, a, a, a thinking uh, political uh, human being. I don't know. It was a, so it was a big turn. I think most people have a pretty consistent political lives. I, I don't know, but it's before, weird to have a turn like Before that. I share with you my origin story, yeah, a couple it, of questions. First of all, um, so Leo Terrell, uh, Leo and I got to know each other a little bit because we both worked at uh, KBC and mm-hmm. did some shows together and so on. When you were in law school and had a, um, a seminar uh, taught by uh, the esteemed professor Jody Armour, mm-hmm. um, I put uh, Leo in touch with you and he was kind enough to speak to uh, your one of your seminars. Yeah, we had a, well, a project at the So the, the question seminar. is, was Leo Terrell, people know right. him now as Leo 2.0 on Fox News, was he instrumental in shaping your uh, political uh, attitudes? No, I would say that when I met Leo in my third year of law school uh, about five years ago, I was already very entrenched in my new ideas, having converted completely from being a conservative to being a, some sort of hardcore hippie, commie, uh, pinko, uh, liberal. Um, and at that point, um, Leo, uh, who called himself calls himself the fair-minded civil rights attorney, and who came and you know agreed to be interviewed as by part that of do project. you mean to suggest that he isn't truly a fair-minded civil rights no. attorney? No, I was oh, saying it's okay. a self. You said he given. calls himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean he's a self-given label. That's the label he uses because yes, yes. nobody. It's not like you I'm know, just trying to get you into trouble with Leo. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and Leo did an amazing uh, job uh, at, in that seminar where he spoke. Where, what did uh, he talk know, about? Basically, well, we talked. We were talking about civil rights, and we were talking about race, and we were talking about policing. And um, it was uh, it was about uh, the 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 sort of tagline of the seminar was about reasonable racism and how the law. Um, has uh, so Professor Jody Armour has written a book called reasonable racism um, and the concept that uh, the law in in the past and even somewhere some places in the present has condoned uh, race-based irrationality as reasonable because so many people harbor those feelings so if somebody is irrationally afraid of another person based on race they can go into court and say look I may have acted in a way that you wouldn't have acted but this was my belief and therefore it was reasonable I was coming from the place that I came from I'm the person I am I have the experiences that made me who I am. And this makes jurors uh, sympathetic and they understand, look, this is a person who maybe has experienced something in the past where they come from a culture uh, where they, they that culture holds certain uh, beliefs. And as a result of that, they can feel however they feel and it's reasonable for them to do so. And the question is, you know, when you when you ask, is a person acting reasonably in the law, you're asking, are they acting in a way that we will punish them for unreasonable or that we won't punish them for reasonable? And so the question is, do we not punish people 
who act with you know racial animus because there is an excuse for their racial animus because they were taught it because they were you know it was reinforced in their racist curriculums at school and reinforced by their racist culture and reinforced by their racist friends and family and society and what are they supposed to do how are you supposed to you're supposed to rise above all that and be better than all that so that was the the seminar that we were about at how how does the law treat people who are un, irrational, irrational and reasonable at the same time? Which is a really tough question. And Leo spoke to it very eloquently. And I would say that Leo has experienced a similar turn that I have, but the opposite way. He has, in the last couple of years, become much more conservative than he was. And people go through these political transformations. I don't know that you ever did. I think that you've been pretty solid in your political beliefs, though I'm sure they've Very evolved. solid, man. They've evolved, I'm sure. So before we get to me, my second question to you, this one has to do with dog poop. Love it. You mentioned when you were a kid, you got and scooped the poop. Uh, right. The fact of the matter is there was a change in the family a dynamic there, and I want your comment on that. Mm. Your older sister, uh, Claire, uh, went off to become a foreign exchange student, and so she thought that was swell, and so she convinced us, hey, we should bring foreign exchange students into our family, and so we did. It's true. And so we had a fellow from Italy named Carlo, and uh, your younger sister, Faye— We also had uh, a, a couple of other people, oh, uh, yeah. Benjamin from France and Arthur from France. Absolutely. And two, S- several. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. for two from Spain. Yeah. But Carlo uh, comes to mind because of the the dog poop issue. Your younger sister, Faye, came up with an idea, as I recall. Perhaps Mm -hmm. you remember the details. Faye is a clever sister. To make sure that Carlo, the foreign exchange student, knew that he had a chore around the house. Do you remember the details? I believe the the details involved uh, Faye uh, shunting off her duties uh, in the, the dog poop collection department to the new exchange student and legend has it family legend has it that the shovel was not passed off and that's <laughs> thus he ended up picking up great dane dog turds which are i tell you what real great indeed they are they are certifiably great with, with, uh, plastic, with, with a not, plastic not bag on his hand yeah absolutely so Faye, Faye didn't go that Those, far. the same way you'd pick up the teeniest tiniest schnauzer poop and she thought it was a hilarious allegedly she denies this so my my origin story isn't nearly as exciting or interesting as yours or superman's or Batman's uh, origin stories. When I was a little kid, uh, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, we'd sit around uh, the dinner table, uh, my sister and my mother and my father and I, and my dad was uh, a family doctor. He'd uh, had a, a family uh, practice in Huntington Park in Los Angeles in the 40s and the 50s. And then as he moved into his 60s, uh, he decided he wanted to switch and he became uh, a doctor for the General Motors uh, assembly plant in Van Nuys. And so that was that was his professional life. Because he was a doctor and because in the early 60s there was talk uh, afoot of socialized medicine, which maybe, you know, ended up being like Medicare and so on, he absolutely was adamantly against that. And I think it was a personal, visceral thing on his part. He and his fellow doctors, most of them felt that this would be a, a complete intrusion in their personal lives, their professional lives would be the government telling them uh, what to do and how to do it and so on. And so I got an earful of that. And so as an impressionable eight, nine, ten year old, I'm, you know, sitting there taking notes. And, right. And I'm automatically. You're such a nerd, you probably were taking notes. Yeah. And I'm automatically a, a Goldwater conservative. Yeah. So that got me headed in that direction. And then along comes the movie star, who is the great communicator, Ronald Reagan, in right. 1966. Everybody's hero. I actually met him, got to shake his hand. And, uh, you know, th- this, this had a huge impression on me. Can I so, interrupt you for a second yes. and then ask? 1966, we're talking, yeah, there's Reagan on the right. But there's also Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. There's JFK. There are these guys who could have been 
heroes on the left for you. Did Were those guys kind of vilified? In, oh, absolutely. In they were vilified because they stood for government tyranny. Mm. You know, socialized medicine was man, one manifestation of that. But just in general, you know, my dad was very conservative. And so it just, you know, I, I absorbed that. Was Nixon and Watergate, sorry to keep derailing you here, but follow up, was Nixon and Watergate, uh, was that all sort of depoliticized and just made like, oh, this is one bad guy, one bad apple, or all politicians do this, or what? What was the narrative on the right when the president was caught and found to be a crook? Oh, yeah, just because Richard Nixon was guilty of obstruction of justice and forced to resign to avoid impeachment and conviction because his own party leaders marched from the Senate up to the White House, led by Barry Goldwater, Mr. Conservative, yeah. uh, the nominee in 64, and Goldwater and the other folks explained to him, Dick, it's it's time to stand it's down. It's over. Yeah, and it had nothing to do with the philosophical position uh, mm-hmm. that Richard Nixon had. And as a matter of fact, Richard Nixon wasn't all that big a conservative. I mean, when you look right. back at wage and price controls, Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah, uh, he, all these he, are Nixon ideas. Yeah. yeah, he was he was more of a centrist. He was more of a pragmatic guy. Basically, he didn't care about domestic politics much at all. He was a deep thinker in terms of foreign policy. Uh, he had uh, Henry Kissinger as his right-hand man, even though Kissinger wasn't terribly conservative. He recognized that Kissinger was brilliant. W- William Rogers was actually the Secretary of State under Richard Nixon and, and for the first several years of, of his administration. And Rogers had been Attorney General under Eisenhower and so uh, knew Richard Nixon from the 50s. But he wasn't a deep thinker when it came to foreign policy. And there was this huge, horrible rivalry between William Rogers, who was always on the outside looking in at, at the candy store. And <laughs> inside, he sees Richard Nixon and, and Kissinger sitting there. Being best get, friends. Get, being best friends, getting ready to, to go to China. And Rogers wasn't even invited. So, Brutal. You know, yeah, it, it wasn't a, a, a strike against the conservative philosophy that Richard Nixon went down. But, you know, where I was headed is that, you know, as you get a little older and, and you start thinking about things, I, I started developing kind of, I'm wondering, well, what does it really mean? I, I had sort of a, j- a vague sense, notion that that the conservative approach that my father was espousing makes sense for a couple of reasons. First, freedom is good. It's nice if the government doesn't get in your way. And secondly, it kind of makes sense, the idea that you need an incentive to work hard because then you get a reward and then you're you're going to be strong economically at an individual micro level at a macro level the na- nation is going to be strong you know we were worried when i was a kid about being blown up by russia there were people were building bomb shelters do you think that that and to me this has always been the most so the easiest explanation for why conservatism and ronald reagan were so powerful at the end of the Cold War is that as the Cold War went on and on and on and got worse and worse and worse and scarier and scarier, you had such a clear cut and obvious enemy in the USSR and the other side that stood for everything that the right didn't stand for, that the up, that the political uh, um, American political right got to say everything that we uh, say USSR, the USSR is, a, is the perfect example of the opposite of that. And we know that they're bad because they're the USSR. Oh, yeah. It was very clear, you know, good versus evil. I, yeah. mean, I mean, let's face it, we did come kind of close. It oh, wouldn't, yeah. It wouldn't have been a shock if if hundreds of millions had been blown up as a result of the Cuban Missile Crisis in right. 1962. In the 1950s, Eisenhower, kind of quietly behind the scenes, uh, was able to avoid some nuclear showdowns. And, and one in particular, we came pretty close. And the story 
story is anyway that the chief aide to Mao Zedong, uh, the dictator of communist China throughout the 50s and, and other decades, went to him and said, OK, we're pretty close, uh, Mr. Chairman, to uh, to an atomic war. And, and Mao Zedong said, well, what would happen you know, if we did have a nuclear exchange? And the guy said to Mao, well, we would lose 100 million Chinese. And Mao responded, well, we could make another 100 million Chinese. That was the mentality, if you believe these reports, uh, in terms of you know how close we came and, and how realistic the danger That's was. That's just such an incredibly powerful force in sculpting uh, you know, political. I mean, when I was a kid, neither the Democrats nor the Republicans, when you said Bill Clinton won, but you know what, we'll get him again in four years. There was no sense that on the other side in the 1990s uh, that the other side was somehow a bunch of mass murderers. You know, the Democrats weren't mass murderers. The, Re- the Republicans weren't mass murderers. So I, I can't imagine growing up in a scenario where it's so easy for one side of the political spectrum to say, well, anything left of me is a bunch of uh, uh, Chinese communist or USSR c- communist uh, evil people who have guns pointed at you and your livelihood. So yeah, it's, it's got to be a massive force. And I think that's a problem uh, in terms of uh, sort of the historical perspective because mm-hmm. when you uh, poll millennials, a healthy chunk of them think, well, you know, communism isn't all that bad because right. it, it, it it sounds like equality in yeah. solving the problem of income inequality. Maybe it solves the problem of racism. And, you know, the historical perspective of just how many hundreds of millions of people died at the hands of Stalin and Mao and other communist dictators is, is kind of ignored or, or overlooked. But anyway, just to finish the endless uh, origin story. So as I get yeah, a little sorry, older... Yeah, sorry, I keep interrupting you. No, no, th- this is great. But I mean, you, you take, you start with sort of a simplistic approach about freedom and you know and what works and for me it kind of evolved into four basic values one value being security another being freedom a third being justice and a fourth being compassion and so you look at them and you say okay security uh, security is important because if you if you don't have uh, security, in other words, stop the bad guys overseas with your army, stop the bad guys domestically, the criminals with with strong police, then you're going to wind up dead. So you have to have that, but you have to balance it. You can't be a, a, a state, a police state, where you lose all your rights. Right. And we had the debate after 9/11. But it's it's a huge priority to maintain security. Second priority is freedom. You know, you start with the default setting. If you're going to take some of my money or tell me what to do, fine. It's justifiable in many circumstances, but you've got to justify that. You have to overcome the the presumption that I should be a free person, enjoy the Bill of Rights, and so on. So that's value number two. Value number three is justice. The idea being all laws apply equally to everybody, regardless of race or sex or, or creed or whatever. And finally, compassion. Uh, let's make sure that people aren't dying in the streets. Let's make sure people do have enough uh, that they have a life that is not marked by privation. And it's all a matter of balancing. You, you don't want to go overboard uh, paying, uh, paying all your money for, for, for guns and tanks and so on. You don't want to uh, go overboard in favor of freedom when, in fact, it's going to infringe on people's uh, lives. Security. And, secu- and when it comes to compassion, of course, you want to help people. But there is no excuse for saying, oh, income inequality, we're going to solve it by everybody making exactly the same amount of money. Right. Everybody has the same house. Everybody has the same vacation. Yeah. You get a car. You get a car. I mean, you <laughs> have to. Oprah, the, the queen of income equality, Oprah Winfrey, multi, multi-millionaire, maybe billionaire. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, a little, little irony there. So, yeah, everybody's got their own irony, yeah. uh, their own uh, origin story. Would you say 
that there were any major world events that changed your political uh, perspective. And, you know, a lot of people would say uh, if they lived through it, that 9-11 was a formative moment for them. A lot of people would say the fall of the Berlin Wall was a, 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 a these are major events that changed the course. And had, like when I go off to college and I meet a bunch of new people with new perspectives, that was a major change. It doesn't have to be a world event. But for me, I mean, I felt like I was too young for 9-11 to really affect me politically. It affected me in terms of me being scared about the world. It was a shocking event that I have vivid memories of. But I was so young, I really didn't have political thoughts other than, you know, us versus them, the good guys and the bad guys. So were there any political events? I mean, did the Berlin Wall falling in 1988 or whatever it was uh, change you politically? Did it take, make, take you more right? Did it make you a little more liberal? Oh, we don't have to be as, as, as harsh on security because and we could be a little more liberal and have a little more freedom because we don't have this boogeyman out there. I mean, what were those formative events for you? You know, to me, the, the height of the Cold War as a kid in the 60s really was was the formative event. Yeah. Uh, all of the other stuff you mentioned is hugely important to follow the Berlin Wall. I mean, the idea uh, that actually communism you know, hasn't completely crumbled, but it was an enormous sea change. And of course, 9-11 was massive as well. But when you're growing up thinking that basically the entire civilization is at risk yeah. to a nuclear exchange. And, you know, pop culture reflected that. I mean, you had movies like Dr. Strangelove. I mean, I watched it again recently, and I'd kind of forgotten just, just how grim it is. I mean, it's such a so wonderful movie and such a funny yeah. movie. But at the same time... It reflects the, a, such a dark world. Yeah, the yeah. dark world, because part of the plot is that everybody winds up dead at the end of the movie right, yeah. because the doomsday machine, you know, you salt the entire Earth with these bombs that are going to go off. Uh, and the same thing with the fail-safe movie. Uh, I mean, where does Henry Fonda get off deciding to blow up New York <laughs> anyway? Uh, so uh, when you've lived through that kind of thing, as horrendous as 9-11 was, you know, it, it, it doesn't seem to be quite as momentous yeah. as this this clash of civilizations and cultures where people were really kind of staring each other down it, with, with sort of cataclysmic results that could happen if, if things don't go just right. Okay, one more, one more question interruption yeah. here. I got to know, do you feel that, let's talk about the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War happens, you're in college at the time, right? Or law school. Right. Um, college. College at this point. It, it, the Vietnam War is, is zipping along and public sentiment starts to turn against it. The American public starts to say, why are we in this war? We don't buy this whole domino theory thing. If it's even, if that was even out as a public reason or if, if the government, I don't even know if it was the government just saying because South uh, Vietnamese need our help or were they actually admitting that it was this sort of domino theory idea that we have to stop communism in South Asia or else they will take over. And the domino next theory for sure. That, okay. that was what uh, drove it. So was the increasing, you know, media coverage of the Vietnam War and the atrocities and the tragedy and all the video that was coming back from the from South Asia as opposed to, you know, just you know, reading headlines, suddenly there's color video coming back. Did that 
uh, and the American people's pushback against it, where you have protests, you've got the, a bunch of hippies out there saying, you know, don't uh, you know, end the Vietnam War, burning their draft cards, uh, and then so, uh, students getting shot at Kent State. Did those events have a big political impact on you? Did you change uh, in response to them? Did you see this as a, hey, maybe these people have some, uh, some, of the, some good ideas, and maybe you know, this war is not as justified as I might have thought at one point? Or did you think, these people are just crazy— they don't know what's at stake. Well, the difficulty with Vietnam is that on the one hand, you have the culture war going on, just as today we have the culture war about people lining up in terms of abortion and guns and, and, and drugs and, and, and uh, immigration, same kinds of issues back then. Uh, and you had, had clearly uh, defined camps. And so people tended to line up on one side or the other. I think yeah. Richard Nixon was able to beat George McGovern in 1972 uh, by uh, vilifying McGovern as being the candidate of amnesty, acid, and abortion, the triple A, <laughs> the three A's. So, so certainly uh, people lined up. The problem with Vietnam is that it was, en it was enormously frustrating. You start out with this idea that here we are, the colossus of the earth, yeah. the, the superpower, right. uh, not that we were unchallenged. I mean, for you know, five years or so after World War II, we were the unchallenged superpower. But then when Russia got first the atomic bomb and then the hydrogen bomb, we were definitely challenged. We, we were stronger than they were in various military respects, but they were, were hanging in there. There against us. So when Vietnam comes along, the the thought by a lot of people, I mean, maybe John Kennedy, if he had lived, definitely Lyndon Johnson was, yeah, there is this domino theory. If we don't stop the communists in Vietnam, then they're going to go to Cambodia and Thailand, then they're going to be in Australia, right. and, and, and blammo, we're, we're just going to be cornered. And so that was the motivation. But as 65 and 6 and 7 and 8 ticked off, the frustration set in because we weren't winning the war. Yeah. And we couldn't win the war because even though we certainly had plenty of bombs to bomb them back into the Stone Age, as they say, and totally wipe Hanoi off the map, we were afraid to do that right. because we were worried that it would cause World War III, that the Chinese and the Russians would together march in against us. And so here we lose, you know, 10... 30, 50,000 American soldiers over five, six, seven years. And what do we have to show for it? Yeah. I mean, so did you, as an 18, 19, 20, 21 year old uh, conservative, did you feel that frustration? Did absolutely. You, did you sort of take it out on your, you know, the politicians who were in power at the time? Who were you blaming for this? I, I don't recall if I was blaming anybody, but I do sense, recall a sense of frustration. I mean, Nixon takes over in the middle of this, right? And he says, I've got a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam. And then he gets elected. And he doesn't have anything. Right. It, it turns out he didn't have a secret war a plan. He instead simply wanted to negotiate. And, and the eventual plan was called Vietnamization, which right. simply means, you know, every Less week us, or two. More them. Exactly. Yeah. 5,000 American troops come out and, and they're, they're replaced by, by the uh, South Vietnamese. So, yeah, it... it you know, some people would say, well, perhaps we uh, held the line and we discouraged further interventionism uh, by communist forces in other Southeast Asian countries. But bottom line is that it was just uh, it was just a major disaster. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, Connor. Yeah, uh, I think we've exceeded our time limit. Yeah, a little bit. But so you know, who's next, who's keeping the clock? Next around podcast, here. maybe we'll do like pick up where we five, left off. Five minutes and just okay. everything will even out. Yeah. 
Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time on Too Many Lawyers. <laughs>